Well, good morning, everybody. I, because we're in the smaller room, I don't have a microphone today, so so we thank you for your understanding and patience. As you know, with we have a new member's lunch. They're doing all the setups right now. I saw Carla and Jim as I was walking in. They said they're expecting 58 total people, which is a very big luncheon. So praise the Lord for all of our new members and the opportunity we have to fellowship with them. So we made sure... Never again will you be forced with the kids' tables. We'll always have chairs, so they take care of that for you. They're not the most comfortable chairs, but they aren't comfortable in the gym, so they're not comfortable here. So anyway, it's nice to be here. We're going to jump right in, but let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the scriptures. I I will tell you I've got to stay close to the podium because the recording is here right now, and I didn't have a chance to count all the squares, so I don't know if I'm in the center of the room or not. So if in the middle of my teaching I realize I'm not in the dead center, that's the look of panic you see on my face. So, um, You know, I've shared this story. I had no idea that I had this quirk until Rick White did it to me. I was at an elders meeting, and I didn't even pay attention. All of a sudden he reaches across the table, and he pushes all my stuff. And I'm like, why did he just reach across the table and push all my stuff? And I realized... Everything I had was at a right angle. So every pencil was lined up perfectly parallel. The notepad was at a right angle so that every corner was there. And I thought, I guess I have a problem. So, so anyway, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters in this class. Lord, what a joy we have to get to pray with one another week after week and to fellowship and also to open your word. I thank you, Lord, for the church service we were able to be a part of and the remembering your death. Lord, it was sad to also have to hear about church discipline, Lord, something that we don't take lightly, but I pray for repentance. Um, And I pray, Lord, that it will sober us to make sure that we continually confess our sins so that we don't walk down a path that could lead to our destruction. And Lord, as we open up your word today, I pray that you'll give me wisdom to communicate clearly. I pray by your spirit that you would open ears to hear and help us take away the lessons that you intended when you inspired by your spirit, the Apostle Peter, to write this letter. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been going through a section of 2 Peter chapter 2 that begins in verse 4 and ends in the middle of what in our current Bibles are verse 10. Verses are not The verse references aren't inspired. Those are just a tool that were added. But the middle of verse 10 is where we're going to. And I think, well, at least my notes tell me, we're going to finish this section today. I'll try not to run over. I'm glad we were all quick and hurrying or quick in terms of the timing of it. But I'm going to do a brief review just to remind us of where we are. And then we're going to dive in and try and power through the remainder of this passage. As I've said In each of the times we've taught, this is the fourth Sunday I've taught on this section, it's Peter's effort to give the church hope in evil and dark times. There are times in human history where evil seems to be prevailing, and certainly that was the case in Peter's day, and we're living in a day like that where evil is everywhere. Perversion is considered normal, And biblical Christianity is considered the aberration. But Peter was writing to a church in his own era with lessons that resonate with us to encourage believers that it's okay. God is on his throne. 
And don't be, don't despair. Don't be discouraged by what's going on around you because God will deal with everything. And again, the immediate context at the very beginning of chapter 2, Paul turns his attention to false teachers. And in future weeks, as we get into the middle, at the beginning of verse 10, he's going to come back to false teachers. But in the midst of this discussion, he's bringing up a bigger argument, and the ultimate issue is false teachers will be taken care of, but it transcends false teachers and just talks about the evil world in which we live. So I'm going to read the entire section again because I think it's helpful to flow along and then I'll give a brief review of what we've covered, very brief, and then we'll dive into the new material. Beginning at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous slot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And as I began this, I I laid out the materials the way Peter lays it out, because he really gives three examples of, of God's actions. And I phrased this outline, three examples to give us hope when evil seems to be winning. And the first example is this, God's treatment of angelic sin. That's verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. His first example, and I'm quickly summarizing, was with certain angels in the days of Noah. And again, the teaching is online and all the references are there. But in certain angels transcended sin. All the angels that followed Satan sinned against God and were cast out of heaven. But some of those angels, a subset, committed to sin so egregious in God's eyes that they were immediately placed in confinement and darkness, locked in chains. Satan is roaming the earth, seeking who he can devour. His demons are roaming the earth, but a subset of those demons aren't doing that. Their sin was so severe that God cast them into hell, and they're reserved for judgment now. They crossed a line, and as I taught, believe it had to do with their desire through demon possession to corrupt human women. They desired them, and that's unnatural. That's against the created order. Jesus made it clear angels aren't designed for marriage and procreation, but these angels abandoned the natural order of things and possessed men for the purposes of fulfilling corrupt desires, desires we can't fully understand for an angelic being. But it was so severe that God put them in prison, and all the other angels fear it. Jesus confronted angels that said, are you here to torment us before the time? Don't cast us into the abyss. In other words, Satan and his demons that weren't a part of this specific judgment have never crossed that line again because God dealt with it effectively. And the lesson is that God knows how to deal with sin. Even in the angelic realm, when you cross certain boundaries, God will deal with it effectively. And the idea, of course is if God can deal with the angels, he can certainly deal with people, and that's his next point. 
God's acts during the time of Noah. This is verse 5. And, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And again, all the verse references in the background from Genesis are there, but the world was exceedingly wicked. The corruption in men's hearts was pervasive, only thinking evil thoughts continually. And Noah would have spent decades building the ark, and in that time he would have had an opportunity through his life and through the questions that would have come to him to tell them, I'm building an ark because God's going to judge sin. And yet, by the time he went into the ark, nobody else was there. It was just seven. He and his wife, three sons, and three daughters-in-law. So Noah plus seven is eight, that's it. But God dealt with the ungodly by wiping them out. And that led to the third action, and this is what we were talking about last week, God's actions in the days of Lot. And this had a negative component, which we covered last week, and a positive component that we'll cover today, but it says this, verse 6 and 7 and 8, And if you condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, that's the negative. That's what we talked about last week. The positive is this, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And last week we covered verse 6, and we went back to the historical account in Genesis where God was troubled by the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah such that he was determined to judge that sin. And we covered how Abraham said, well, what if there's 50 righteous or 45 or 40 or 30 or 20 or even 10? And God said, I'll relent. But Sodom and Gomorrah don't exist anymore. There weren't even 10 righteous people. In fact, as I alluded to last week, and I think I'll, I'll reiterate this week, I think it was just Lot. I don't think his wife or his daughters were righteous. It's just Lot. But God knew how to judge sin. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was perverse sexual sin. It was evil, vile rebellion against God. And God destroyed them with fire and brimstone. Reducing them to ashes. The imagery is of it's covered over. In fact, to this day, nobody knows exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah was. If you've been on one of Steve's tours to Israel, you can see a lot of the ancient cities. This was here. Earthquake destroyed that. You can't find Sodom and Gomorrah. God covered it. He wiped it out. And, and Jesus himself even used Sodom and Gomorrah and the example as a warning of judgment. And that's what Peter's talking about, saying, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. It's the warning to America. It's the warning to any country, any people that is rebelling against God in such aberrant ways. And it's interesting because it seems like one of the common themes of debauchery and evil and its evidence of God, Romans 1, giving them over to a depraved mind is perverse sexual immorality. It existed in the days of Noah such that the angelic, demon-possessed people were a part of it. That's what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And as I'll cover at the end, he's already warned us about false teachers and one of the Tactics of the false teachers were they were sexually immoral such that they were leading the church into sexual immorality. That's the warning bell for America because that's what's happening everywhere. Sexual immorality is transcendent, so it seems, in our culture. Things we couldn't have imagined seeing in a movie theater 30 years ago were on regular TV all the time. 
So that was the negative. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the new material. We get to verse 7 because this is the positive of the picture. Just like with Noah. He destroyed the ungodly. He rescued Noah here. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he rescued Lot. Verse 7 and 8. And if you rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men... For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And this is going to ultimately become exactly Peter's point in verse 9, rescuing the godly, rescuing the righteous. But as we begin to look at this verse, there's a controversial phrase here. It troubles people. Lot is called righteous three times. He rescued righteous Lot. What he saw and heard, that righteous man felt his righteous soul tormented. Why is that a problem? Because the Old Testament doesn't paint necessarily a very flattering picture of this man named Lot. It's interesting because Lot is a figure that most people understand somewhat. I alluded to that with Sodom and Gomorrah. Even unbelievers, they have some idea of that story. But the very first thing we see of Lot in terms of volitional action had to do with his economic motives. We read this before, but in Genesis, and the passages I'll be going to are in Genesis, but Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 and 11 say this. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar, so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, thus they separated from each other. And really, this is the picture where Abraham and Lot, they had so much possessions and so much livestock that they couldn't occupy the same property. And if you remember the story, Abraham said, look, if you go left, I'll go right. And if you go right, I'll go left. And so what we're presented here is the picture of Lot looking, and it's like, that's better than this. I'm going to the better. Now, some people immediately say, well, that shows that Lot was greedy or other things. And the Bible doesn't really say that. I don't know what we would do if you could have the new car and the car keys versus the used car. You take which one. Be honest with ourselves. But the reality is, Lot, that's what's there. And so some people say, well, that doesn't look selfless and sacrificial. Isn't that a part of being righteous? But again, that's just people reading into that a little bit. But there are other things that aren't questionable about Lot. So, for example, he showed hospitality to the angels that he didn't know were angels. They were men that came into town. They were going to destroy the city They had just been with Abraham and the angel of the Lord, the, I believe, pre-incarnate Jesus. But these angels came to town and Lot welcomed them. He showed hospitality. And then if you remember the story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 19, these wicked people in the city basically saw two strange men and said, let's gather together, we're going to have sex with them. The vileness of that idea, we just want to rape these people. It's vile. And when Lot was confronted with that, he took serious steps. He tried very hard to protect these men, but he did it in an abominable way. 
Genesis 19, verses 4 and 8 says this, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. This is depraved minds of Romans 1. This is vile and wickedness. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, please, brothers, do not act wickedly. To this point, it's like, good job, Lot. You tell him. Verse 8, though, is horrific. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. That's a shocking, indefensible statement, period. No father should ever do that. And so some people look at that and they say, well, wait a minute. How could he be referred to as a righteous man? He, look what horrible thing that was. How could that be? And certainly it shows horrific judgment. Whatever his laudable goals at the moment to protect those that had taken shelter in his house, that's a horrific approach and response. Another issue that people come up with and looking at Peter's words, calling him righteous, 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 as they say, look, he didn't even leave town when he was told to leave town. In Genesis 19, 15, and 16, there's an account, and I'm going to read it in just a moment, but basically, Lot was told, you got to get your people out of here. And if you recall what preceded it, he went and he talked to his children that were living outside the home, and his son-in-laws, and they thought he was kidding. They ignored him. So the only two people in the house that were his children were the two daughters that he was going to turn over to an angry mob and his wife. And the angel said, when morning dawned, verse 15 of Genesis 19, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. So in that moment, people who want to challenge what Peter says say, look, that doesn't look like faithful. And he had to be dr literally dragged away from judgment. Doesn't paint a picture of Lot as a man of great faith that he hesitated. What's interesting is there's another element of that was he was told, you flee, let me just point, you fleed over there. And then Lot basically was like, I can't go that far. No, no, no. Genesis 19, 17 and 19. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. In other words, go now. Verse 18. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you've magnified your loving kindness which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains. For the disaster will overtake me and I will die. In other words, he didn't have faith. I can't make it that far. Give me, a, give me a space. Give me a break. And God was gracious and allowed Lot to pick a different place, not as far away. And he said, get there and then the destruction will happen. 
And of course, on the way, his wife did look back, turned into a pillar of salt. So she's done. So now it's just Lot and his two daughters. And then the final nail in the coffin for some people is what happened immediately after that. These two daughters of Lot revealed themselves to not be righteous at all. So they had just seen their entire world destroyed. Everybody they knew, all their possessions, and in some twisted, depraved reasoning, they said, well, we're going to wind up with no husbands and no kids, so we've got to have our dad provide the necessary means so we can get pregnant and wife families. That's depraved thinking. That, that's, again, people from such a wicked and corrupt city that aren't regenerated by the Spirit of God, they obviously had the mindset of their compatriots that were just going to be destroyed. The Bible says this, they hatched a plot, they were both in on it, the oldest daughter and the youngest daughter, and they were going to do this. Genesis 19, 32 and 33. Come, let us make our father drink wine and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Next night, they did the same thing with the second daughter. So they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. In other words, the picture of the Bible is Lot had no idea what happened. But what the Bible does say is twice in a row, Lot got drunk. Their plan worked because he was willing to... And then when he was so inebriated, he didn't know what was going on. They could do whatever they wanted. He's not responsible for their sexual immorality. He didn't even know it was happening, but he's responsible because he was... And obviously the hangover of the first day didn't stop the second day. That drunkenness is sin, period. It's a horrific example. He started drinking. In and of itself, the Bible, I believe, is clear that consuming wine in and of itself is not a sin or else Jesus wouldn't have turned water into wine and he himself wouldn't have partaken of wine but we're supposed to exercise self-control and that was out the window for Lot and he got drunk clearly he wasn't responding well to what he was experiencing in fact his reaction was just like what you'd expect for an unbeliever but if we think about it for a moment we might cut him a little slack his behavior was sinful but he was a wealthy man that was living life and he lost all his children except for these two daughters And his wife's now dead. And he was immensely wealthy, which is why they had to split apart in the first place and all his wealth was wiped out in an instant. He was having a Job moment, so to speak. And I say he had more children because that's what the scriptures say. Genesis 19, verses 12 and 13. Then the two men said to Lot, this is before all this happened, whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of this place. In other words, you have more kids than those two daughters. We all love our kids. You can imagine they're all destroyed. All the wealth, everything. But none of that justifies drowning your sorrows in drunkenness. 
So if we step back, the picture that if we only had Genesis that's painted is that Lot's was perhaps an opportunistic man, shown the better and the worse, he took the better. He almost committed an egregious sin with his two unmarried daughters, something none of us can even comprehend what he was thinking. And even though he lived in a horrible place, there was something about him that hesitated about leaving and he had to be dragged out. And then he got drunk on back-to-back nights. And the first night didn't teach him a lesson and he did it the second night. Here's what we can establish without doubt from Scripture. Lot was a sinner. And yet the clear teaching of Peter is that Lot's weakest moments did not permanently define his character. He sinned badly. He did. But God is the one who calls him righteous Lot and says he was a righteous man and said he had a righteous soul. God loved Lot. Genesis 19, 16, the second part says, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. Here's the bottom line. And I read all these commentaries. People are trying to come up with why would Peter say what he said. The reason Peter said it is because it was true. It was true. Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's not writing fairy tales. He's already said that earlier in his letter. He's not making up stories. This is true. We can't ignore God's word. And this is interesting, and this is important. God's word never hides the failures of God's servants. In fact, early in my Christian walk, one of the things that convinced me the Bible was true, I know it was the Spirit of God working in me, one of the things that convinced me that the Bible was true was the sin that was recorded. You read ancient historical societies, it's always the victory, always the win, always the hero. That's fiction. The Bible writes real stories about real men and women who sin. God shows the truth, warts and all, even of his choice of servants. And this is important. It was resonating in my mind yesterday. What we learn from God's characterization of Lot, and as I'll show in a moment, we learn elsewhere in Scripture, is that in God's eyes, and we can praise the Lord for this, you and I are not defined by our worst moments. I'm not going to tell you to dwell on your worst moment right now, but every one of us have done things that nobody else in this room knows about. Goodness, what would it look like if God chose to write about us in Scripture and our sin? And yet if He did, and He picked the worst moments of your life, He could still refer to you as His righteous servant. I think about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Not the disciples, but who appeared with Him? Moses and Elisha. Moses was a murderer, killed and buried the Egyptian. Elijah 
One of my favorite parts of Israel was going to Mount Carmel, thinking about Elijah calling down fire. Called down the fire on the prophets of Baal. What a, wow, it's a win, yes. And shortly thereafter, he was depressed and suicidal. In the wilderness by himself, not trusting God, saying, God, you've abandoned me, take my life. King David, God made a covenant with him. The Messiah came through the line of David. God repeatedly refers to David as a man after God's own heart. But not only did he kill a lot in battle, he committed atrocious adultery with the wife of one of his most trusted commanders. There's an account of the inner circle of David's military prowess, and one of them is Bathsheba's husband. So this wasn't just a random person. This is his inner circle that he cheated. And then, because she got pregnant, and Uriah had so much integrity that he wouldn't sleep with her, like, I can solve that problem. He had him killed. He was a murderer as well. Even Peter, who's writing these scriptures, denied the Lord three times, probably with some profanity in his mouth. He cursed. I don't know anything. Who are you talking about? And if he rescued righteous Lot, God did this. God had his angels go in, literally take Lot by the hand because he had compassion on them. He was being merciful to bring Lot's wife and daughters with him. They were in the house. But Lot believed God. We don't have the account of it in Scripture. And I believe what the Scriptures show by experience and by what Peter says is that just like Abraham, Lot believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And I want you to be encouraged by that. Because your worst sin does not prevent God from looking at you as righteous if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. In fact, God calls you righteous if you're his child, regardless of what you've done. Because Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sin, for all your sins, but he also clothed you with his righteousness, with his perfect obedience. Romans 3, 21-24 says this, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We should be encouraged that this at times foolish man, this at times sinful man, Lot, is referred to as righteous because we're in the same boat. God rescued you and me from a life of sin and darkness. If you're like me, when you look in the mirror, you don't see somebody that's righteous. I know my daily struggle against sin. And yet, theologically, I know it's true because Jesus died for me and because God showed me his mercy in the eyes of my Lord, I am righteous. By referring to Lot, this imperfect man, 
with some horrific blunders as righteous, it shows that the most vile sinner can come to faith in Christ. And Lot was righteous. Just as you and I, if we know Jesus, are righteous despite our sins. We can finish this section because this tells you a little bit more. And since God revealed this to Peter, we know it's true. The Genesis account doesn't reveal this, but I believe it because Peter was revealed by the Holy Spirit. He said, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, this righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And what this does, and I think is very pertinent for us, it shows that this was not an isolated incident. This was Lot's life. Lot was tormented by the evil that was all around him. It had to have tormented him that his own children fit right in. And the husbands of his wife or his daughters fit right in. They didn't leave. They felt right at home. This was their, this is where they wanted to be. Judgment? He must be kidding. Yet in the face of all that, according to the scriptures, Lot himself never joined in. Did he sin? Yes, he did. Did he struggle? Yes, he did. But personally, he was striving to follow the Lord in whatever imperfect way. Lot was tormented by the evil around him. It broke his heart, I'm sure, particularly as his kids were involved, but it also disgusted him. Sensual conduct as it's used in that term, has to do with sexual and wicked behavior. Sexual immorality that was rampant as reflected by the men that were trying to rape the men in his home, but it obviously transcended that. These people openly flaunted the natural order of things. God created humans to do certain things, men and women to have certain relations, and it was being perverted and twisted And Lot's heart never wavered. This is the, pardon the vernacular expression, but God's standards were being given the proverbial middle finger by the society in which Lot lived. They were laughing at God. And again, we don't know what full revelation the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had, but they're without excuse, Romans 1, 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah knew there was a creator God. They just didn't care. They would have known that homosexual relations between men and women, be it women to women and men to men, were unnatural, not part of the created order. This is not why God created humanity, and yet they didn't care they indulged in all of those things. They reveled in those things. And they're described accurately by Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving their own, in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
whatever revelation Lot had, Lot knew that all this was wrong. It couldn't be. And yet this is where he lived. This is where he resided. He dwelled there. This was his reality. If you're like me, there's been a fleeting thought at some point in your adult life, it'd be nice to go live on an island somewhere away from all this. But we're all still here. And what we know is there is nowhere to flee from evil on this planet. I think Lot experienced every day what we're experiencing now. Every day he saw people pursuing evil. Every day he saw unnatural things being reveled in and celebrated. And it hurt his heart to see vile behavior being embraced. I read the news a lot online. I don't hardly anybody gets a newspaper anymore. But if you watch the news every day, you read about some parent encouraging their son to become their daughter or their daughter to become their son. And they're even willing to mutilate their bodies and say, well, this is good. There are men claiming to be women that are competing in sports and doing all kinds of things. The embrace of what the Bible calls unnatural behavior of homosexuality is so rampant that people have lost their their shock. Blasphemous statements are made about God repeatedly and nobody cares. It's funny. People won't say anything against Islam because they're afraid the Muslims will kill them. They won't say anything about a lot of things because they don't want to be embarrassed and humiliated. But you can criticize conservative Christians that believe the Bible. We're fair game. We're going to see this on display next year in our election season. The ads that are going to bombard us day after day. Here's the point. Lot is an example to us. Let me encourage you. If your heart is not tormented by the proliferation of wickedness that is going on all around us, immediately repent and ask God to stir your heart. I read a comment, and I wish I'd written the quote down. And I can't even remember who to attribute it to, so I'm paraphrasing. But I remember the thought in one of the commentaries. It was saying, basically, it's easy for us to become numb, and it doesn't even bother us anymore. Please never let that be the case with us. Just like with Lot, this behavior should torment us as day after day we see it increasing. One of the things, and I've talked about it in the context of false teachers, but one of the things that false teachers do is they normalize this behavior to try and take away your shock. No, 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 God's not bothered. No, what? No, God doesn't make male and female. Be whatever you want to be. We fit in the category. And here's the point for us. God rescued Lot. He was tormented, and all of these things were there, but God took care of him. And that really brings us to the concluding point. 
It's his statement of hope that really says, okay, in light of these three examples, he's building an argument. Because God dealt with the angels this way, that sinned, and because God dealt with the ungodly in Noah's day and protected him and his family, and because God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah and took care of the wicked and rescued Lot, verse 9, because of those things, this is the proof, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Here's the hope for us. And it's the reminder, and there's so many places in Scripture like this. But you remember at the end of chapter 1, Peter says, I know you know all these things, but I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. I'm going to keep reminding you. And one of the things that he's reminding us is don't be ignorant of history. Don't get so consumed by what's going on now that you forget that God has acted before and he will act again. And in this case, all the examples of rescuing Noah and his family and rescuing Lot, God knows how to protect his children. He knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. In this context, it's not those inner desires to do evil that he's talking about. He's talking about the temptations when the world is coming at us and trying to destroy us. And the outward persecution and all those things that are bombarding us. And at times it can feel like, oh, I might as well just go ahead and go under the waves. I can't float anymore. Remember the movie The Perfect Storm? There was about a fishing boat and, and the nor'easter. And this is a terrible movie because the whole movie you're pulling for the boat and then at the end it sinks. It's like, what was that? <laughs> you're supposed to have a happy ending. But at one point, it's a story, and the storm is there, and the boat is, they couldn't save it, and they couldn't outrun the storm. Then a couple of the guys, it's like, okay, let's get to the surface. They're going to get to the surface. And then the one guy is swimming away, and he turns and looks back under the water, and you see the captain. He's not leaving. Boat's going down. He's just sit. I think Peter doesn't ever want us to have that attitude towards living in an evil and falling world. We don't ever just say, I give up. Just go ahead and pull me down with you. No. God knows how to take care of us. Our boat won't sink. The storm might be that severe, but God knows how to rescue us. I should come back and remind us all of this after the next presidential election if it doesn't go well. God's going to take care of us. I got a lot of experience with this. I lived in California for 18 years. I could tell you who was going to win every election. It's the person I didn't vote for. <laughs> Debbie and I always knew that. It was kind of funny. We're not going to not vote, but boy, you talk about futility. Be a conservative in California. But the point is this. As believers, we, we always have to step back and remember the big picture. Yes, the world is all that evil. It is vile. It is terrible. But God will take care of us. He won't let us fall. He knows how to rescue the godly. And don't worry about the evil that seems to be transcendent. God will deal with it. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Again, think of the worst people that you can think of in the world, and all of us will have a different image in our head. They're not getting away with it. 
Israel might not hunt down every one of those Hamas terrorists. That's okay. They're not getting away with it. We may never see the criminals who have committed so many atrocities. Don't worry. God won't let them get away with it. There are doctors who have aborted thousands and thousands of babies. They're not getting away with it. God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for judgment. And then the little caveat at the end of verse 10 is really a transition to our next section. As I mentioned to you, this started with the false teachers. Just as there were false prophets, there's going to be false teachers, verses 1 to 3. And in verse 2, one of the things that's mentioned is that those false teachers engaged in sexual immorality. And he comes back to this at the end of verse 10. So he's got this big, broad view that says, look, God knows how to rescue his children. Don't worry. And God will take care of judging the unrighteous and the ungodly. Don't worry. And then he says, especially. He brings this back around. All those things are generally true of society as a whole. But he brings it back around and he says, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And I believe from the context and what we'll see in the coming weeks, he's going back and he's talking about false teachers and he's describing them again. These false teachers who specifically were sexually immoral. These false teachers who were not only immoral, they were teaching other people how to be immoral and telling them it was okay. Verse 2 said, many will follow them in their sensuality. And if you recall at the time I was explaining, that means many of the congregation were following the immorality of the false teachers. And Peter says, especially those individuals that are using the pulpit, so to speak, that are using the church to indulge their carnal Sinful sexual desires. And he says, and they despise authority. And in the context, I believe what it's talking about is ultimately the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. Again, earlier in the text, he said that they deny the master. In other words, the idea of submitting themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, they don't want any part of it. They despise Jesus and his place on the throne, which coincides with the desires of their father, Satan, who despises the place that Jesus had on the throne. I think, in fact, as we've talked about in other messages, on other topics talking about Satan, I think the ultimate issue for Satan, the reason he fell, was because he wanted the seat that only Jesus can have. And so Peter's saying, look, those false teachers that are engaging in sexual immorality, he's going to describe them in great detail over the next few verses. And they despise authority. They don't want to submit to Jesus. And they show they're despising authority because they ignore God's created order. Especially those people, they're on God's list. God will take care of them. You don't need to worry about it. Don't despair, particularly in a day of sexual immorality where it's everywhere. God's got it covered. Particularly when you hear pastors saying homosexuality is no big deal, transgender, that's fine. Don't worry. God knows how to deal with them. And unless they repent, 
he will. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, some for his glory, some on the way to their judgment. So God's on his throne. Don't panic. We're going to be okay. And even in the midst of a lost and dying world, Peter is giving us a word of hope. And then as we jump into the next few verses and the next sections, I'm going to try, I think, to cover them in a couple of big sections. But really, it's just a picture of the corruption of the hearts of these false teachers. And I think, although next week I may change my mind as I study it more deeply, but I think what we're going to see again, kind of like I did in verses 1 to 3 where I said marks of a false teacher, I think it's going to show us what we should be looking for. I hope you never leave Lakeside, but if for some reason you had to go somewhere else, you would make sure that you don't see these things in your teachers and you would use this to judge the teaching that you're willing to listen to and to warn other believers if they start listening to people that's li- whose lives are characterized by what we're going to see. So, with that, let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I'm confident that you can use your spirit to make up for the areas where I don't articulate well the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us hope and encouragement from this. Lord, I pray that we would see that despite our weakest and worst moments, you still view us as righteous for your children. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, others might look at our lives and say, how can that person even claim to be a Christian? I know what they did. But Lord, we know from the promise of your word, you view us as righteous if we're in Christ. And we say thank you. And Lord, help us not get overwhelmed by the evil all around us. Our hearts are oppressed and afflicted. Lord, if we've grown cold and if we're not as bothered by the immorality around us as we should, Lord, forgive us. Stir up in us the detestment of evil that we need. But Lord, help us never to be overwhelmed by our culture and society. Don't let us ever despair and give up. Lord, help us keep pressing forward until that day when you call us home or you return. We love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, and Lord willing, next week we're going to be back in the gym, so I will see you all there.